this morning, um, we have as, a, as our message uh, something we call here a one-off. We're not in the middle of a series. It is just a one, one-time message. And I've entitled our one-time message this morning, It's Better. Now, I think the phrase, it's better, is a, uh, is a really interesting phrase. Um, because, it, because I think it is a phrase that provides insight in the contrast. And what I mean by that is it gives you insight about two realities uh, at the same time. And, and it's two realities at least. And what I mean by that is this. If I say, for example, that there is a, a lo- local coffee shop that is better than Starbucks, <laughs> I'm giving you some insight not just into the better coffee shop, but also Starbucks, right? I'm telling you that your experience, your, your, um, your, uh, your taste buds, your, everything that, takes, that, that you experience around a coffee shop will be better at this place and worse at Starbucks, right? Every time you say that something is better, what you're doing is you're making a comment not just on the one thing, not just on the, not just the object of your comment, but on the other thing. When I say that the Green Bay Packers are a better football team than the Chicago Bears, what am I saying? One team is good, the other not so much. That's a commentary that the outcome of choosing one over the other, the experience of the one uh, instead of the other will be less enjoyable, less positive, less productive. Whatever it is, depending on, on what we're talking about, it gives us two ideas. Vacationing in Italy is better than vacationing in Indiana. Right? Paul expresses this sort of dichotomy in his farewell speech to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 when he talks about his life as an example of living sacrificially in generosity. He says, it's better to give. Or as the King James Version says, it is more blessed to give. His statement is that a lifestyle of giving, a life that generously gives, is better than one that doesn't. And actually, he kind of deepens the idea when he says it's not simply better than a life that doesn't give, but it's even better than a life that receives. The actual statement is, it is better or more blessed to give than to receive. Now, whenever I hear that, whenever I read that, whenever I contemplate that, it strikes me as a fairly profound statement. And I say that in that it works directly counter um, to our intuition on this, on this idea, or directly counter to our experience on this idea, actually. I, 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 I want to be honest with you guys this morning. I, I want to share something with you, and I really hope that this doesn't undermine your confidence in me as, as a pastor. But in my experience, when people give me money, it's been better than me having to give people money. Anyone else ever heard of that? Somebody walks up and hands me a check, that usually feels better than me having to hand people checks. How many of you guys are looking forward to April 15th to give away some of your money? No, right? 
So intuitively, we've had this experience where we go, no, you know what? It isn't better to give. It's, it's better to receive. So Paul is sneaking, stating something there that, that is quite profound in that it goes counter to what we intuitively feel and what we've actually experienced in our lives. And I say it's profound precisely because of that, because it is different. It is, he says, better to give. So why does our Christian faith, our, our, our Christian value, and our, our Christian ideals lead us to the conclusion that life is better when you give than when you receive? I really think that's a, that's a question worthy of examination. For many of us, we've heard the phrase, we've, we've repeated the phrase, we felt like it's a phrase that we should say and actually believe. But, I, but as I say, for most of us, if we really get down to it, it doesn't make sense to us. And yet it's in the word of God. And it's in the word of God because it specifically leads us to a place that is only experienced in the context of what it is to be a Christian generous giver. The, the truth is, Paul's example that's expressed here in Acts chapter 20, I think provides the foundation for promoting the incredible value that is discovered in the Christian lifestyle of generosity. It is a starting point that initiates, that really ignites the power of Christian living. When we as Christians stand and say, it is better to give, it is more blessed to give than to receive, there's a reason for that. And the reason starts with the example that Paul gives us. Now, I want you to understand the context of this conversation. Paul is, is in this place having a conversation with the elders of Ephesus. Now, a lot of times when we think about the journeys, the missionary journeys of, of Paul, we can be sucked into the idea that it was a short period of time, that maybe he was like a modern evangelist and he'd show up in a city and he, he'd set up tent and he'd begin to preach and he'd preach for a week or maybe 10 days or a month even. And then he'd move on to the next. Well, that's not what Paul did. Paul, in the case of Ephesus, went and spent a year, maybe two years, maybe three years, in the city of Ephesus, establishing a church. And through that process, he was meeting people and he was bringing people to Christ. And the people he's talking to are those people that he likely led to Jesus Christ, that he discipled, and then he established as elders. And so he's having this conversation in Acts chapter 20 with, with the elders of Ephesus, knowing that he's leaving and knowing that he is likely never going to come back and see them again. That his life is coming to an end, most likely. It's been prophesied. He realizes that this is, the, the, this is probably goodbye. And so he sits down and he has this incredible conversation with him. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite conversations ever recorded in Scripture. Because what it does is it reflects the heart of a pastor. It reflects the heart of someone who loves these people, who's developed these people, who cares about these people, and he's saying goodbye. So this is the context of the conversation he's having as he's instilling in them a, a heart of minister, of what it is to now minister to these people in his absence. And he says this, Now I commit to you God, I commit to you God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. 
In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what is it, what is it Paul is saying here? Paul is, using, Paul is using his life as an example of that give. He says it is better to give than to receive, and he's tying that to what he did. So he's saying my life amongst you, my ministry amongst you is an example of living a life that says it is better to give than to receive. But there's something very specific or particular about the way in which Paul is giving that begins to become the foundation, begins to become the the launching pad for this better life of Christian giving. You see, the truth is, Paul was positioning himself to give in a way that was not required, that, that that was not... Uh, expected, that was not compelled, that he didn't have to do. See, Paul had a right to be paid. Paul had a right to be able to receive payment from the people for his ministry. And I want you to understand, this is important to understand. Paul believes that he is not required to give in the way he did. He's under no obligation to minister free. And this is, this is a key. Paul is very, very clear in his writing that he has a right to payment. But he gave of himself freely and willingly out of a heart for the love of God and the love of the people. Now, how do we know that Paul holds that position? That, that he, that, how do we know that Paul believes it is his right to be paid? Well, he's really clear on it. He writes to the church of Corinth, and he says this, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. So what we know here is Paul clearly spells it out. He says, I have a right for you if I am sowing seeds of the spiritual seeds in you to receive a material payment for that. And he's saying God commands that, that when he preaches the gospel, he has a right to payment. But Paul, in the case of Ephesus and even the case of Corinth, he said, but you know what? I want to give to you. I want to give to you and show you how much you are loved. Paul did this not under compulsion or requirement, but he did it out of a love for God and a love for the gospel. This is 
an important piece. The giving that is better, the giving that is more blessed, the giving that transforms us and leads us to a life that is the better life that Paul talks about is giving that is not required. Paul is saying, I have a right to payment. In fact, when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he said, those who minister are worthy of double honor. He has a right to payment. But he willingly, not compelled, gave. This is key to this all. The Christian generosity that bears a better result is not forced. Or as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, let each man give according to what he has determined in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now I want to remind you again that the reason why we're having this conversation is because what Paul tells us is it is better A better outcome, a more blessed life, is one that gives and gives generously. And this is the only way in which that giving will bear the blessings promised in God's word. That we give from a part that does it from love and grace and compassion and not from obligation and legalism. Here at Mercy Hill Church, that's what we want to see from this congregation. We want you to position your heart in a place where you want to bless God's church and you want to bless God's people. Not because you feel like you have to, not because you're being harangued into it. And and I want to take a moment right now to kind of stop because I want to make sure I address any thoughts that you guys have in your mind. If you guys remember three weeks ago, I got up here and I was telling you, hey, we're coming to the end of the year. Right now we're facing a, a, we were facing a $13,000 deficit and I kind of made the appeal and asked you guys to respond so that we could finish in the black. You guys did that. We're great. Like we, we finish in a way in which, in which we are now in the black, it's covered. I'm not doing this because we're in trouble, okay? This isn't a response to that. I'm doing this because I believe each one of us, to grow in Christ, to have the faith in Christ, to have the walk in Christ that he wants for us, we need to position ourselves to have this kind of heart. And I'm bringing it to you at the start of the year because I believe it would be great for us in 2024 to be a congregation that has this kind of heart, that gives because they believe in what they're giving to, that gives because they love God and they love his church. I don't ever want us to be positioned in a place in which we feel like it's our obligation or our requirement or our legalism. Honestly, it's one of the reasons why I I shy away from emphasizing tithing here. Um, I don't want it to become, I don't want giving to become legalism. Many churches um, teach the biblical practice of the tithe, the 10%. The, The concept of the tithe gets its roots in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant practices And many churches emphasize it as a requirement. In fact, some people will tell you that if you don't give your 10%, there's a curse on your finances. I find that to be far too manipulative. Uh, And I have tended to not make tithing a front and center piece of our conversations about finances. And and I want you to understand something as I say that. Um, It's not because I think tithing is inappropriate for, for New Covenant Christians. 
Um, some Christians, some churches will say, oh, that's not a New Testament principle. That's an Old Testament legalism. We're not bound by the tithe. We don't have to give the tithe. Um, but I want you to know that's not why I don't emphasize it. Elise and I, we practice the tithe in our, in our, in our personal lives. We start by giving 10% of everything that comes in to the kingdom of God, and to the work of God, and to the church. That's what we do. And I believe it's actually a healthy practice for us as Christians to have. And I don't believe it is something that is relegated only to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus Christ himself made a comment about the tithe. Jesus Christ, when he talked about the tithe, made it clear, I think, that the tithe was fine. In fact, that the tithe was good. One time that Jesus talked about the tithe, he was addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And this is what he said to them. He said, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, of your rue, and all kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. What does Jesus say here? He says, guys, you guys practice the tithe to the nth degree. I, I, I heard one, one, one scholar say that when Jesus talked about, about these herbs, he was like, he's like, that's the equivalent of us today saying, listen, you guys even tithe on your salt and pepper. Like you guys, you guys pull out the 10% of those granules and you put it aside for the things of God. And Jesus says, guys, you are clearly heavy into tithing, but you've forgotten justice. You've forgotten taking care of the poor. You've forgotten those who are suffering. Now, Jesus doesn't say there, listen, you should have not worried about the tithing and worried about the justice. That's not what he says, does he? He said you should do the former without neglecting the latter. So Jesus Christ, when he had the opportunity to say, listen, this is an Old Testament concept, this is an Old Covenant concept, you don't have to do this. And I, and I want to remind you of this. Jesus Christ did not shy away from that conversation. Jesus Christ, over and over and over again, was confronting their ideas of Old Covenant responsibilities and saying, we don't, that's, that's not necessary. You remember when, when he talked about the idea of the eating laws? The eating laws were something that was a part of the Old Covenant that, that Moses established that we see over and over again that they were being held to. And Jesus' declaration was, it's not what you put in your body that defiles you, but what comes out of it. In fact, in the book of John, when he makes that declaration, John, John's commentary is that with that, he eliminated the need of all eating laws. So Jesus Christ was not shy in confronting things that were meant to be left in the Old Covenant and not for the new covenant. But in this case, he made it clear. He said, you should have done the former, which is the tithe. So when we talk about this, we don't talk about this from the idea of saying, like, I think the tithe is bad or wrong. I actually would encourage people to do that as a starting point. But if we make that a legalism, if we say it's just me checking my mark, I did what I need to do, and I'm done with it, I think that's problematic because that's not giving with the heart of generosity that says, I'm not required, but I want to. I, I want to give whatever I can give. I want to purpose in my heart what God has for me to give, and I want to be generous in that regards. So like I say, I think tithing is a, is, is a good starting point, a good point of reflection. But if giving ever becomes legalistic, you will begin to lose the better, the more blessed way of Christian giving. So the igniting of the blessing of giving is from a heart of service 
and love and Holy Spirit guidance. Giving according to what you have determined in your heart and not under compulsion. And then the word shows us why that posture, why that behavior leads to giving instead of receiving, producing a better and more blessed life. Gifts obviously benefit the recipient. The church continues its ministry, the hungry are fed, the missionaries are sent. But from God's point of view, generosity is more important for the giver than the recipient. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And the reason for that, first of all, is that generous, joyful giving produces a better life because it leads us to an increase in our character. Or really more to the point, it leads us to an increase in the sanctification that takes place in the life of the believer. Our Heavenly Father wants us to conform to the image of the Son. The character of Christ is is one of unselfish giver. And unfortunately, um, humans, and I don't know if you've noticed this, are selfish by nature. We tend to look to ourselves and want our own. And that is our humanity. That is a part of who we are in in our human experience and our human existence. But the call of every single believer at the core is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To be more like Jesus. To be moving more towards his nature and who he is. And for many of us, money particularly becomes that point in which we become selfish and hang on to it. Jesus Christ was in his nature, and as an example to us, a great giver. We see it over and over and over. Conformity to Christ is the core of Christian belief, and Jesus Christ set the example as giver. 1 Timothy 2 says, He gave himself as a ransom for all. Ephesians 5 says, he loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Galatians 2 personalizes it and says, he loved me and gave himself for me. The giving that helps us combat the great threat to our nature of selfishness is is imprinted upon us by the Holy Spirit when we follow in Jesus Christ's footsteps as an individual of giving. It is not insignificant that the word of God says that that the love of money is what? The root of all evil. If we want to be conformed to the holy image of Jesus Christ, we have to learn to practice, to give generously. And when we do, that begins to form in us the better life that God has for us. A giving life is better Because we see an increase in our character, becoming more and more like Jesus. Secondly, a given life is better because we see an increase in heaven. Now, this is an interesting idea expressed by Jesus in in probably his most extensive dissertation on the topic of giving. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, he talks a lot about 
what is expected of us as individuals as it relates to money. He talks a lot about the concept of money in, in this particular passage, and, and it, it, begins, uh, it begins with a, a, an, a, an instruction about where to put our money. But it ends with something even, I think, more powerfully. So at the end of this dissertation on, on, um, on finances, Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, every time I hear that, it strikes me as like the period exclamation point on how to look at our finances. You cannot serve two masters. You either serve God or you serve money. So that puts us in this place, in this posture of going, listen, how do I look at my finances in relationship to the things of God? But he begins the conversation with something I think even more interesting in that he makes this declaration. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven when neither the moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. He tells us as we look at, and I I want you to understand something, he's not talking about this in the spiritual. The whole conversation is about what you do with your money. And so he says, I want you to store up in heaven I want you to take your finances and store up in heaven something of greater value. What appears here, it appears to be the case that the Lord tells us that heaven has its own bank where we can invest for eternity. Paul wrote about this in Philippians and he says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Each of us have an account in heaven, apparently, that we will be able to enjoy for eternity. And although we can't take it with us when we die, we can make deposits into our heavenly account before we die. Jesus was saying, what we do with our finances here establishes something there. Jesus wants us to to demonstrate that we have an eternal perspective that motivates us in everything that matters. And the eternal perspective is really about investing in the eternal work of the gospel. Paul's writing in Philippians was about commending them for giving to the work of the spread of the gospel. The eternal account is the ministry of the gospel. A life of Christian living is better because it produces an eternal harvest that cannot be corrupted. What do you care more about? Do you care more about houses and cars and vacations and comfort? Or the eternal resting place of souls? The the, the spirits and souls of individuals? This is what Jesus Christ was saying. Do not store up treasures here on earth, but store it up in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. When we practice as Christians a, a, a life of generous giving to the things of the kingdom of God, we demonstrate that the eternal matters more to us than the temporal. Thirdly, giving is better because it brings about an increase here on earth. Proverbs, I think, expresses the spiritual principle in this way. It says, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. 
And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. The, the, the instruction here from, from the wisdom of Proverbs is that giving will provide a greater return. Now, for me, this is a, a tricky reality that, that I've often over the years struggled to teach. Um, what the Bible is revealing here is that when we give, God multiplies that gift back to us. And I struggle with this because um, we have to remember that, that the heart with which we give matters. And what so often people do when they hear this idea, when they hear this, this concept um, expressed, is they give so that they can get. Oh, you can never outgive God. He's going to give it back to you, like, as if God is some like, spiritual investment plan. Like, if you give this, it's going to return back to you ten, tenfold. And so what happens is we, in our humanity, we, in our selfishness, will so often look at giving as a way of getting back, and that undermines everything we've talked about to this point. And yet the principle still seems true. There's a reason, though, that he multiplies back to you. And Paul explains it well in 2 Corinthians. He writes and says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. He who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The very clear principle that Paul talks about here is what we've been saying, that if you sow generously, and he's talking here about financial investment, if you give generously, then God will return back to you that which is generous. And what you need to understand is it is very clear that he's not talking simply in the spiritual. A lot of times we want to spiritualize this and say, well, yeah, you can give of your finances, but God's going to be blessed back to you. And he's talking about not necessarily in money, but he's talking about in the spiritual. Now, I think that does happen. That's what this whole message is ultimately about. But that's not what Paul says. Because in two separate ways, he says he's going to bless you in all of these ways. He's going to bless you in every way. And then he says, and when he blesses you back, what was, what's the purpose of that blessing? Is that blessing is to come back to you so that you're more comfortable and you can have a bigger house, you have more cars? No, he says he blesses you back so that you can now sow even more generously. The principle that's being shown here is Jesus Christ trusts you. Jesus Christ trusts you with more. When you show that what he gives you, you sow into that which is heavenly. So the whole point is this. He's saying, listen, as you give, don't worry about being at want because I will give back to you so that you can generously give more and you can bless those and you can establish that, 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 that account in heaven that has eternal value. So the truth is, if we, are going to be, if we are going to be stingy, if we are going to withhold, then God is not going to be activated into your finances to bless you back. The most dangerous place we can be as Christians financially is stingy. 
We have to be willing to step out in faith and allow God to meet that faith with his generosity. One of the reasons it's better is because God will multiply back to you what you've invested in so that you can keep investing for the glory and the kingdom of God. And finally, maybe the most important reason why it is better, why a Christian life of generous giving is better, is because it increases an intimacy with God. Above all else, giving draws our hearts to Christ. If you go back to Matthew 6, chapter, or Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says this, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. His declaration here is, when you give to Christ and his work, it is a way of expressing your love for him. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. It leads you, your giving, your generosity, leads you to what ultimately matters to you. And it works both ways. Where, where your heart is, you give. And where you give, your heart will be. In other words, I can, I can, I can give a, um, a, I can take a, a inventory of my heart, of my passion, of what I love and what I care about by looking at what I spend my money on. And understand something, these aren't my words. This is what Jesus says. Do you love Jesus more than things? Now, again, don't get mad at me. This is what Jesus said. This is his whole dissertation here. It's about how we handle money. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I truly believe what it does is it reveals the life, the heart we have for our Heavenly Father. And then as we give to that, our heart will move in that direction more and more and more towards him. A life of generous giving draws us into an intimacy with Christ that too often is broken, that is too often interrupted by our passion for the things of this world. Because ultimately, that's what this is about. It is about making a declaration that the things of this life are not more valuable to me than knowing Jesus. What you have to give to, you, when you, whatever you give to, you show your love for. Ultimately, the better life is one that's not tied to the things of this world, not encumbered by the concerns of this world, but set free from earthly infatuations to love God. You cannot serve two masters. You, can't, you cannot serve both God and money. Practicing our faith, taking tangible steps that demonstrate our love, that evidence our priorities, will always bear spiritual fruit in our lives. Too often, we as Christians do not walk in faith. We talk about faith. But it is the action that shows the depth of our, our commitment, and it's the action that produces the depths in our spirit. We cannot serve two masters. God must, must be our Lord. 
He must be our lives. Every aspect of it must be yielded to him if we're to know him more intimately. And I know that the thrust of the conversation this morning has been around finances, but I want you to understand this. That, in a nutshell, is the mark of a Christian. Does God have lordship over all things? When I talk to somebody about their faith in Jesus Christ, the first question I have for that person is this. Do you make God Lord of everything? Are you willing to lay down every aspect of your life before him? Whatever it is we're talking about, whether it is our our finances or sexuality or our careers or our families or whatever it might be, are you willing to lay everything before Jesus Christ? Because if the answer to that is no, then I question your salvation. The mark of a Christian is to say, he is Lord of my life. And whatever he asks of me, he can have. Now, that's not easy. That's not an easy path for every Christian. And we fail so many times along the way. But it is the heart of a Christian that says, that's the life I want. Is every aspect of your life yielded to Jesus? Or are you holding things back from him? For many of us, there are so many different things we have to work through. As I say, for some of us, it is is our future. For some of us, it is our finances. For some of us, it is our sexuality. For some of us, it is fill in the blank. But today, the challenge before you is this. Do you have everything yielded to him? As I say, for some of you, you need to look at your finances. If you can look at your checkbook and realize that you give far less to the things of the Lord than you do to your own pleasure, the Holy Spirit should be speaking to you right now to reprioritize your life. But for some of you, it's not just in that area, but others. The call today is, is everything his? Because once we as Christians determine that it is, there is a better life for us.